Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our next episode of Dirty Drinks. I'm here today with Dr. Starlin. How are you, Dr. Starlin? Doing very well, Sarah. Welcome back. You just had a trip, didn't you? I did. I spent 10 days on the road. Um, We road tripped out to Gettysburg for an epic ghost hunt road trip. I think that might be another podcast in and of itself. Did you everybody have masks on? That's the key question these days. Um, Well, it ended at a convention in Gettysburg. And um, the last time I counted, I saw about 10 people on the convention floor with masks on. So I brought my respirator with me and wore that. (laughs) Yeah, I was in Hy-Vee and I think I was one of three people with a mask on the other day. The other one actually had a UNMC mask on one of the other ones. So that was, I I thought about going by and elbow bumping him or something to to keep it, to keep it good. But uh, it it didn't maybe seem appropriate. Yeah. Well, let's get into our interview today. So we have a special guest with us. You know her better than I do, so I will let you introduce her. Yeah, great. We're super excited to have Dr. Andrea Zimmer with us today. She's one of my colleagues here at UNMC in infectious disease, and she is the service line director for oncology ID, which we'll talk to her about. And I'm sure she wears other hats that I'm not meaning to short her on, but welcome for joining us today. It's great great to see you. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. It's great to be here with you. We're really excited to get to know you more, Dr. Zimmer. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, your path through medicine and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, yeah. So um, I actually went into medicine because my uh, grandfather was a um, trained as a surgeon and then was a small town family catch-all physician and a pilot. And so like flew around to different towns in Nebraska doing Uh, surgeries and taking care of a wide catchment area of um, populations in small towns. Um, I went to medical school at University of Kansas and then went to University of Florida where I did internal medicine residency and chief residency and then uh, went to Vanderbilt in Nashville for an infectious diseases fellowship and um, then finished my training off at Mayo Clinic for one year in um, transplant and immunocompromised infectious diseases. And I've been on faculty at UNMC since then, so about six years, I believe. That's awesome. Great. Yeah, awesome. Did you grow up in Kansas then, or? Uh... Um, kind of. I uh, grew. I was actually born in Kearney, Nebraska, and then my family moved to rural Minnesota, like um, West Central Minnesota, when I was in third grade, and then we moved to Hayes, Kansas, when I was in uh, sophomore in high school. So a little tour of small town Midwest for me growing up. It must have been really interesting seeing your grandfather, you know, be able to like fly to different areas to treat patients. Um, Now we really don't have that, do we? Not really. I think there are still some places um, in rural areas in the country where, you know, surgeons will go have a clinic or an OR uh, time that, you know, is otherwise not routinely staffed, but that really um, is becoming less and less common. Most patients either travel um, to larger communities to have their care done or, you know, don't seek elective surgery, perhaps. Uh, yeah, so it was interesting. There was never a dull dinner uh, conversation at his house, that is for sure. I bet. Since you had an interest in medicine, did you ever get to accompany him when he went on any of his travels and, uh, you know, uh, fly in his airplane that would be pretty cool yeah I did actually um he had like three small airplanes like four to six seaters and so he was a member of um a group called flying physicians and so they um when he was a member would meet yearly and they'd pick um like interesting places to travel to across the U.S. that usually weren't associated with a large airport usually had like a a smaller airport so I went to um uh Monterey, California with him, and then like the Poconos in Pennsylvania. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So 
tell us a little bit about your oncology ID hat that you wear. This is yeah. very interesting to me. Yeah, um, it actually is kind of a unique service. Um, it's a niche within um, infectious diseases that um, not all centers have, but um, more and more I'm realizing it's a, a very important one to have. So um, I see and care for patients who are um, diagnosed with malignancy and undergoing active um, cancer therapy. So patients um, ranging from a spectrum of you know, surgery um, to resect a primary tumor with curative intent, those receiving radiation or chemotherapy for solid tumors, um, patients with hematologic malignancies that are receiving different types of um, cytotoxic chemotherapy, targeted therapy, um, and stem cell transplant or other cellular therapies. And so oncology is a field in medicine, I, I think is rapidly evolving. Every time I come on service, you know, there's a new chemotherapy agent uh, that's been approved for um, a specific indication. And so it's a field that is constantly evolving and constantly um, forcing us to, to learn and kind of evolve our practices. And so it's been a really enjoyable, you know, team and, and group to work with. Yeah, it certainly sounds very interesting and diverse. And every time that I, um, you know, see one of the patients, there is a new med or some something that ends in MAB or something that I have to try to figure out what the heck it is. It's almost like you have to have another specialty knowledge, at least enough to be dangerous to know what's going on. Because I mean, it sounds like uh, you know, many of the infections that you have to look for are based on what part of the immune system the various medications that people are taking impacts, correct? Exactly. And even in the case of hematologic malignancy, like what their primary malignancy um, does to their native immune system. For example, um, patients with different types of leukemia um, have abnormalities and certain types of um, white blood cell or immune fighting cell lines. And so those cells um, by nature of them developing abnormally then don't function immunologically the same way that um, you know, our, our white blood cells do in fighting infection. And so even prior to chemotherapy, patients can be at risk for infections. Um, patients with like chronic lymphomas that are chronic leukemias and lymphomas, even if they're not on therapy, their immune system can be different enough that they can develop what we call opportunistic infections or infections that arise given the opportunity um, in an impaired immune response. Um, but yes, Dr. Sherlin, you're absolutely right. Chemotherapy agents um, are kind of falling into the cytotoxic chemotherapy group where they are more um, uh, non-targeted or they have the function of destroying all rapidly dividing cells. And so that's kind of the traditional chemotherapy we think of that also causes hair to fall out, um, cells within the mouth and GI tract to become damaged and so can um, increase risk for infections and other symptoms um, by that nature. Um, targeted chemotherapy where it targets a specific antigen or um, marker on a tumor cell and collateral damages to those particular types of cells. And then also now there's immune activating chemotherapy or you know the classifications of like checkpoint inhibitors that actually harvest the natural immune response and kind of upregulate it so that it attacks uh, tumor cells more aggressively. And side effects from that chemotherapy can look like infections or other autoimmune conditions. And so uh, there is often a, a broad differential depending on what underlying disease and, and agents the patients are receiving. That's very cool. I have a lot to learn, I guess. <laughs> So you mentioned that this is a really niche position that you're in right now. How did you get into this position? Yeah, um, great question. So I knew I wanted to do infectious diseases from very early on. I um, sort of developed my interest in medical school and I actually thought I wanted to do like global health or tropical medicine. I spent a year, or not a year, uh, like two months in um, Africa as a medical student, I rotated in. Um, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, with some of the medical students there and really enjoyed my experience and kind of the um, beauty of 
actually having to rely on the patient to make the diagnosis, you know, your exam findings, your um, history from the patient because of the lack of um, rapid testing or, or you know, radiology um, resources available there and thought maybe I wanted to go live in a, a foreign country and, and, you know, do global health medicine. Um, and then kind of realized that probably I wouldn't want to be away from my family or um, friends here in the U.S. for long term. Um, but the residency program that I chose, the University of Florida, happened to have a very um, large and busy uh, transplant program, both solid organ and um, bone marrow uh, transplant programs. And so I um, happened to do my ID elective fairly early on. And then I did another ID elective working with the transplant teams and kind of fell in love with with that service, I was deciding between doing hemonc and like doing, you know, being a, a bone marrow transplant specialist or actually a liver transplant specialist and then realized the commonality between those two patient types were the interesting infections and kind of um, immune processes that were occurring and just the complicated uh, nature of those patients and that they often involved like multidisciplinary teams, like working with other consulting and primary teams. And so I really enjoyed that collaborative approach. Um, and then, so the fellowship program I chose also had a very large and robust um, stem cell and solid organ transplant program. So got some more experience there and saw how a different institution um, approached those patients and, and the infection um, diseases, consult services and caring for them. They did have a transplant infectious diseases service at Vanderbilt as well. They um, combined both solid organ and bone marrow transplant into one transplant ID team. And so they would see both those populations on their consult service. And then interestingly, the Nashville VA actually holds the um, bone marrow transplant program for um, the VA system in, in the US and as well as the heart transplant program. And so um, my VA experience also um, included caring for heart transplant recipients and um, working in the, the bone marrow transplant unit at the VA. And then um, decided I wanted to pursue an additional year of clinical training with these populations because as Dr. Starlin mentioned, it is almost a different, um, you know, you need to understand the, the transplant immunology um, very well in caring for these patients. So it is almost like a, an additional uh, specialty or fellowship and um, got to spend some extra time at the Mayo Clinic working with their um, transplant programs. And they did have a separate um, solid organ transplant program um, on the ID service, as well as a stem cell transplant ID um, consult service. And so watch that model and um, how, how that division approached those patients. And then um, ended up here at UNMC who actually had had a separate um, solid organ transplant and oncology consult, um, ID consult program um, in place, I think for about 10 years before I came. And so it was well established here. Um, I came and joined Dr. Allison Freifeld who um, started these two services and worked under her for a few years. She was, um, or is my mentor. And then she retired from clinical medicine um, last year formally, but kind of was in a phase retirement. So I took over the directorship three years ago now, I think. So that's my quite, life. Yeah, that's quite the journey. Now, how long is all that training for somebody that's as specialized as you are? It sounds like uh, it, it takes a, a minute or two. Yeah, um, so I did three years of internal medicine residency. The chief years kind of thrown in there just for fun, but not everyone. Um, pursues that. So um, three years for that, and then an additional three years of infectious diseases training. I think most programs that um, are now hiring people to do transplant or oncology infectious diseases are looking for fellows that have trained within ID for um, three years and have had um, experience at a, a transplant program or a, a cancer center where they're very familiar with these populations. 
was your chief year, was that just after your internal medicine residency? Yeah, yeah so it was, a, it was a year after the internal medicine residency. I got to be a, an attending on the inpatient general medicine service and do um, some teaching uh, with the fellows and med students. And then I was the, the schedule chief. So I got to be in charge of creating a schedule for, I don't know, like a hundred residents uh, doing 50 different clinical services. So that was, um, that was my, my adventure for that year. Yeah, ours was actually after fellowship. So I was chief after I completed I fellowship. That was the way that WashU did it for whatever reason. I don't know. I think it got us a little bit of time separation away from the, the residents. So maybe we didn't have, uh, you know, close personal connections with some of them from working with them in particular. So I also had to do the, the schedule for, I don't know how many, we had like 170 or something like that. It was ridiculous, but it was a big spreadsheet that hurt my head. It hurts my head right now thinking about it. My husband is a um, software developer, so he actually wrote me a computer program to plug in all the like nuances with like clinics and like who could be on what service during ICU and like, yeah, um, backup system. So um, that was the only way we um, did not have any like unscheduled rotations for the year or like no like double booking and that was the only way that happened is that he wrote a program that prevented that <laughs> nice i could have used him <laughs> yeah yeah that sounds like a million dollar idea dr zimmer yeah you should market that <laughs> yeah you'd probably get some takers on it every every year there's a new chief president coming in that has to do that somewhere so i, I think that's great how many places in the country do you think have this specialized training? It sounds like it needs to be at a big tertiary quaternary care center, you know, in most of our major cities probably has, you know, something similar to this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it is becoming a more common um, interest area and a more common um, niche within the large academic centers. Um, whether or not they can fund a third year is another question. And, and I think different institutions approach this differently. Um, some have like T32 training grants where they kind of identify um, fellows that are interested in this area uh, during their first year. And then their uh, second two years are funded through like a research grant underneath that um, subspecialty umbrella. Um, and then there's some fellowships that have optional funding for a third year to stay on with additional training. Fellowship programs that offer a one-year transplantity fellowship that you can go to after completion of an infectious diseases fellowship, um, there's probably 10 to 15 now um, in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, I think that number grows a little bit every year um, as it becomes a more specialized or um, popular interest area, but there's there's still a, a fairly limited number. The way the programs, it's not an ACGME accredited fellowship, and so it's sort of a, each program, you know, establishes their own curriculum and the, the rotations that will um, be included in the immunocompromised or transplant or oncology ID rotations, and there's some centers that do a lot, are much more heavily focused on solid organ transplant, and there's some that are much more heavily focused on oncology, stem cell transplant, hemolignancy um, patients. And so, and there's some that have a hybrid. It sounds like you've been kind of all over the country and even globally. Um, what was your favorite place to live? Oh, um, well, my favorite place to live, and this may be a reflection of the time in my life, um, I spent six months in um, Prague in the Czech Republic, my uh, senior year of college. And so um, just before I um, like started medical school, I actually did a semester abroad in, in Europe and it was lovely and amazing. And I just really learned so much about the world and myself. And so it's, it was a very interesting time to be there. I think I went in 2004. And so, you know, probably just 10 years after communism ended, like the Berlin Wall fell. And so it was still pretty fresh in, you know, the local population's mind and kind of um, greatly influenced their um, feelings with uh, people coming from other countries or people they didn't know. And so um, historically, it, you know, it was just a very interesting experience. I 
took a class in um, Eastern European history that was taught for, by a concentration um, camp survivor. And we went to the concentration camp Terzin where he was imprisoned and where his parents were killed. And so it was just a incredible, like eye-opening experience for me at that time. And then um, on a, a brighter note, I got to travel throughout Europe. I didn't really have, you know, I had class like three days a week. And so um, four day weekends to go explore all of Europe. Um, that's very cool so you were also in Tanzania you said you spent six months there I believe uh, um, just two, two months, months there two yeah months there. sorry two months there it was six months in Prague right so yeah. sorry um what was I mean I bet that experience was pretty amazing yeah it also was very eye-opening so um we um our medical school had international electives that we could choose from. And so there had been um, a graduate from KU, like College of Journalism or something that um, was a Tanzanian and uh, went back to his home country after receiving his education and volunteered to um, help host medical students to come uh, rotate at the government, government medical schools in, in Tanzania to kind of uh, teach each other and learn from each other experiences and so we um packed up our bags went to Dar es Salaam Tanzania and um put this gentleman's like name and uh you know street number on our uh luggage ticket in case it got lost and kind of just discovered where to stay once we got there we rented a you know hotel, several bedroom hotel room for the the month that we were there and got to rotate in um, three different government hospitals. Um, we unknowingly, and I guess I um, should disclose this to the employee health uh, person, since my um, PPDs have all been negative, but we actually ended up in an HIV um, TB ward where the students collected their own AFB uh, smears and cultures. And um, we figured that out fairly rapidly and um, stopped going into those units or the labs as they were running those smears. Um, and like I said, my uh, PPD was negative after coming back and has always been. Um, and so that it was just incredible to see, like it's basically, you know, the the pictures that you viewed at other international um, hospitals where they don't have a lot of resources an open ward, um, you know, the corrugated tin roof overhead, no, you know, air conditioning, heat, um, et cetera, everything's open window. The roof doesn't really, you know, fully come down to the walls. And so, you know, people bring, have to bring their mosquito nets to the hospital or we um, provide them for them because um, there's no way to keep them out. And then um, families are the main caretakers at the bedside. There's um, more limited resources in terms of nurses and physicians. And so family brings food from home and they help care for the patients um, at their hospital bedside. Um, that 2004, or wait, that would have been 2008. Um, and so, you know, HIV was still very much uh, a huge medical problem there. Um, and actually, during our stay, uh, George Bush came through on his uh, PEPFAR um, kind of mission. And so he was at the hospital uh, the year or the week we were out on uh, safari. So we did not actually get to see him, but we saw them, you know, paving roads from the airport to the hospital in order to accommodate the pre presidential, um, you know, car uh, brigade or whatever you call it, the, the entourage that he travels with. And so, um, all around Tanzania or all around Dar es Salaam, there were billboards like, you know, with his face on it and saying, we love you, uh, U.S. And, and George Bush. And so that was kind of an, an interesting experience to have as well. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Did you go to the Serengeti or Goro Goro? That's where I want to go. That's like on yeah. my list for sure. We did. We took a, a week vacation and went went on safari. Um, yeah, just there. Um, we flew into Arusha and went to the, um, so we saw Kilimanjaro um, as we were flying in. And then, uh, yep, went to the Serengeti during the migration and um, in Gorongoro crater. It was just unbelievable. That's amazing. Highly so, recommend. I would go back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely want to go. You know, one story from my chief resident here is just to kind of the, uh, 
to go back in time a little bit is we had a resident that went there. I guess something that people do there, I don't know if this is true or not, but she, she, this is the story she said is that the people that live near Lake Victoria, it's like somehow going into the lake is somehow some experience or something like that. And of course there's just a semiasis in Lake Victoria. So it's a bad idea. So she said that a lot of people around there, when they go in there, then they get, um, they come out and they take Praziquanel. So she came back to St. Louis after having swam in Lake Victoria and wanted somebody to write her for Praziquanel. <laughs> and so, of course, I was the ID person as the chief resident because I also had a hemonc and a nephrologist. And so she comes to me and I'm like, what the heck were you thinking? <laughs> So, so uh, yeah, so that was the, the, the fun story of my chief year of, some, uh, of uh, you know, 20-somethings doing things that they probably shouldn't be doing. Funny how, how often that happens. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been 20-something before. <laughs> <laughs> so with all of your experience that you've had to get you to where you are now, what would be some advice that you would have for some students that may be wanting to figure out where they should fall in their medical career? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think one of the pieces of advice that I would give is like, pay attention to what you love, where your passion and interests are, and like what you don't enjoy doing um, when in medicine and apply that, like think about what about that particular um, you know, patient or that particular experience really um, drives you or, or catches your interest. And then think about what, um, you know, when you're on a rotation or you're shadowing, like what about a certain experience is not um, as interesting or as pleasant to you. Um, I thought I would really like OBGYN, but realized quickly that I didn't enjoy the like uncertainty of the like workflow. And so OB, um, as you guys probably well know, is a lot of like um, wait, wait, and then hurry up and like um, deliver a baby or run to, to something, um, you know, because something um, is, is needing your attention right then and there. I like the ability to kind of have some control over my, my day and my schedule and know that um, the work I was doing was important and interesting, but like if I needed to run to the bathroom real quick or if I needed to you know, grab a snack or something, I had that, um, that sort of control over, over my, my time and my day. Um, and then, you know, just follow, look at um, different, like experiences from working with different faculty, different residents, different fellows within a, a field and kind of pick up what you like about their style and what you don't and try to incorporate that into your, your toolbox as you move forward. Because I find myself drawing even from experiences of attendings and residency or fellowship or even medical school of things that I saw that I thought went well or worked well in dealing with patients or colleagues and things that I didn't and um, kind of take that forward with you through your career. That's great advice. Yeah, I agree. That is great advice. And I told you I'd short you on your introduction. So you're also um, uh, part of the team that helps with the fellowship program. Uh, and so that's one of the hats that you wear around here. So you're, you're kind of used to giving life advice to young fellows or even prospective fellows uh, coming into ID. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that you find that as a rewarding part of your job here as well, working with the young learners as they start their ventures into ID. Yeah, I absolutely do. The fellows um, always amaze and impress me. And they really keep the, um, you know, working with trainees and um, students at all levels really keeps the um, enjoyment and enthusiasm alive. I like to share, you know, interesting cases and um, talk through, you know, my thought process on patients and in doing so, um, sharing my, my interest and passion, it keeps my you know, enthusiasm for the, the job alive. Um, I also do direct or co-direct a um, two different medical school courses, one for the first years in including um, microbiology, it's called blood defenses and invaders. So we work with 
um, immunology, hematology, and then microID colleagues to create content for early um, students within their preclinical work. And then um, I co-direct a it's called multi-organ systems block with um, rheumatology and then my colleague, Dr. Bears and infectious diseases um, where once students have um, rotated through all of the different organ systems blocks, we kind of put it all together for them um, to where you can actually talk about, you know, the different types of pneumonia, how it presents clinically, uh, meningitis, um, some of the zoonoses and vector borne infections that it's hard to grasp those concepts before you have some of the clinical and pathophysiology context um, very early in the first year. And so it's kind of the rotation that they get to do right before they take USMLE step one and then go on to the, to the wards. Speaking of that, I think you just reminded me, I have some of those lectures, those small group lectures, things coming up. I have to look and see when they are. Yeah, they're not till October. <laughs> okay. They're a lot of fun. I, I greatly enjoy them with the, with the, the you know, really early learners as they're, you know, just trying to figure out, I just, you know, what's important and what's not, you know, and, and uh, it's, it's, it's difficult because you get so much thrown at you and uh, trying to figure it out. And I think it's so cool. The curriculum now uh, is not, you're not just like basic science and then your clinical science. It's they mix in a lot of clinical scenarios and clinical medicine very early in training, which I think, obviously, I think that's why most people, not everybody, obviously, but most people go to medical schools because of the clinical stuff that they want to end up doing. And so traditionally, the first two years have been, you know, sit in a classroom, listen to lectures, and, 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 and more like a traditional, what we think of as like college or something, whereas now I think it's much more experiential. And I suspect that the, the student satisfaction is, is much higher and it helps generate knowledge of what people want to do earlier in their uh, medical school careers, I, I have no doubt. Yeah, yeah, and we actually have um, data from surveys um, nationwide that does demonstrate, you know, um, student experience in microbiology and their um, early medical school experience does drive their interest um, in infectious diseases later on, and so if they you know, love their microbiology course in medical school. They're much more um, apt to consider infectious diseases as a specialty later on. Whereas if they have, you know, kind of a miserable, um, they don't enjoy microbiology or it bores them, then they're much less likely to be interested in an ID later. And so that is a, a great um, motivator to kind of, um, you know, make the, the teaching interesting, challenging, fun to foster interest that hopefully extends um, much longer after we see them. Um, but yes, the students really, really love working with um, clinical faculty. They love hearing how we, you know, what goes on in the hospital and the clinic, and they love hearing the, the anecdotal stories. They do always surprise me, even in the, you know, very early part of their first year, they're very resourceful and really can like reason through a case that I think is going to be very difficult or complicated. And, you know, the, their performance always amazes me. What do you think a pandemic will do for ID? Draw people in or scare people away? <laughs> yeah, um, I think that it has increased our, you know, ID applications this year. Um, I don't know that it's done the same for like critical care medicine. It'll be interesting to see how it influences um, not only specialties within like um, physicians in the medical field that way, but I also wonder what it's going to do for, you know, nursing and respiratory therapists, um, you know, the, the hardest of the hit um, first line workers. It'll be, it'll be interesting will be interesting. But hearing you guys talk about all of these awesome classes that you're working on makes me want to go to medical school. <laughs> I know sometimes I feel like I would audit um, first and second year medical school again. I feel like um, my colleagues um, in other disciplines also have a lot, lot to teach me that I did not pick up the first time around. <laughs> I'm not sure I would get into medical school these days. I don't know. It seems like it's, these kids are, that go through are, their credentials are amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, things that they've done by the time they're, you know, 18 to 22 years old is, is pretty amazing. It's, uh, 
it's good. I, I just hope that, uh, and I and I'm sure that we will be in good hands as we get older. We'll have a good generation of trained providers to take care of us. The future is bright. <laughs> so you get to see all kinds of crazy infections with your patients having significant uh, immune compromising conditions, either their primary conditions or the medications that we're treating those with, as we talked about earlier. So you have to tell us about some of the crazy, interesting things that you've seen. Yeah, um, there are a lot, so it's hard to um, pin down just one or two, but um, one of the super interesting cases I saw when I um, first joined faculty was a gentleman who um, had a leukemia and actually had, um, you know, CNS or brain involvement of his leukemia. And so that happens with certain types of leukemias and they sometimes will install what's called a nomaya or a reservoir to easily access the um, central nervous uh, system and the cerebral spinal fluid. Um, and they can inject chemotherapy agents there. They can sample fluid from that device um, so that patients aren't going to have to constantly have uh, lumbar punctures. And this gentleman went to transplant and actually was doing fairly well and got a new um, dog after a transplant um, just for kind of emotional support and um, you know to help with with some of the isolation he was experiencing after his chronic chronic medical conditions and he developed uh, meningitis um, of the um, omaya device and so whenever that happens we always have to get uh, the neurosurgeons involved and usually it involves um, we needed to remove the device often um, infections with the omaya are due to skin flora sort of like any other indwelling device when you access um, a sterile fields um, through skin or um, places that can be colonized on the outside that's often what what shows up but he actually grew um, gram negative rods and um, he ended up having like a pastorella meningitis um, and, you know, his dog slept with him in, in his bed, but didn't um, recall any, you know, injury or um, trauma to the device itself. And there are some case reports associated with that. Um, another, uh, the cases that are always most, um, challenging and uh, difficult to uh, treat as, an, as someone in oncology infectious diseases are usually the invasive fungal infections, the, the mold infections. And these are kind of the most feared or most dreaded um, infectious complication of the AML um, MDS population because they really occur in the setting of profound, prolonged um, immune deficits, um, you know, impairment to the function and level of their neutrophils. Um, and it often occurs in the setting of like refractory or relapse disease where they've been through multiple lines of chemotherapy, they still don't have normal cells back. And um, so seeing patients with um, invasive fungal sinusitis where um, fungal spores that normally live in the environment and are, um, we breathe in every day as part of our normal air um, become pathogenic in these populations. And so, especially after chemotherapy where um, barrier, like mucosal barriers are broken down due to the cytotoxic or kind of cellular damage related to the chemotherapy. And then in the setting of um, prolonged profound neutropenia, they can develop very significant infections um, in, in the sinuses. And once those infections start to develop, they actually track very quickly through tissue planes. And if you think about it, the sinuses are a very, um, surrounded by very critical tissue. And so they're very close to orbits, eyes, um, and actually very close, unfortunately, to brain. And so these are considered a medical and surgical emergency because um, they can track very quickly into the brain or into these critical structures. And then they have, are associated with very high um, morbidity and actually mortality. If they um, enter the CNS, they're often very um, difficult or impossible to treat. And I always tell patients they, the therapy for these types of infections involves threefold um, and only one of which I have control over. And so um, it is, you know, antifungal therapy, which is sort of the, the last in line for the, the treatment. Um, and then the other two are surgical resection and debriding down to clean, healthy, uninvolved tissue. 
and then also um, reversal of their underlying um, immunocompromising disease. And often if they have active leukemia, it is really a catch-22 because giving more chemotherapy can progress, um, allow that to progress rapidly, but um, without chemotherapy, their AML or um, aggressive hematologic malignancy will often progress and um, usually has very poor outcomes associated with it. But we do have some success stories. There's been some um, patients where the, you know, all stars align and um, we've actually been able to get them to, to transplant after um, a fungal infection that was caught early, debrided aggressively. Um, I have a patient that I think I've been following for three years post-transplant um, that survived mucorous sinusitis and went to transplant. So that was a wonderful success story. Um, there was another patient when I was a, a resident that kind of influenced my interest in, in transplant ID. Um, and it was such a striking presentation in case that it's just kind of always stuck with me. And so I did residency at University of Florida in Gainesville. And as I mentioned, they had a large um, solid organ transplant program. And so there was a patient that actually came over um, from another country with autoimmune hepatitis to be evaluated for liver transplants. And while he was there, it was kind of a vacation for him and his family. Um, and so he ate some raw oysters and went walking barefoot in the Gulf and um, was admitted before his liver transplant eval um, for like a cellulitis on his leg um, by the hepatology team, they thought they'd just do his liver transplant about while he was um, inpatient. And I got consulted or like the infectious diseases team got consulted and we went to go see the patient about an hour later and the cellulitis had progressed extremely rapidly to where it was involving the entire, um, you know, extremity. The patient was looking more toxic and septic and headed to the ICU. And um, we said, you know, you need to call surgery ASAP. This is probably uh, necrotizing, um, fasciitis or soft tissue infection. And um, he had um, vibrial vulnificant sepsis and um, went for hemipelvectomy, but actually unfortunately didn't survive that um, process. And so it was just um, striking how somebody went from, you know, walking around on a Florida beach to not surviving this very aggressive process. Yeah, I agree. I think that's one of the most striking things about infectious diseases is that in the right setting, and with the right organism and with hosts that we don't completely understand all of the risk factors, people can go from well to sick and dying in quick time with some things like Vibrio in that right setting, as you said, maybe even you know, a Niacerea meningitidis in a young person, um, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, uh, uh, you know, certain infections that we see that can just be devastating if they are in the right host. It's, uh, I think that's, uh, you know, it's, the things that we remember are those types of cases. So I have uh, one last question for you, Dr. Zimmer. Is there anything that you are uh, reading or binge watching right now? Ooh, um, yes. Let me think. I am kind of stagnating on a book right now that I'm reading. I can't even remember the title, so that's... Um, <laughs> Not good. Um, my husband and I have been binge watching a series called The Magicians on Netflix. Um, it's kind of a um, sci-fi uh, series regarding these, um, you know, college kids that you know, discover they um, have magic powers and have an alternate um, fantasy world that they go to. So we're kind of sci-fi um, nerds sometimes. I He watches a lot of like Star Trek, Star Wars genre, but that's not my my cup of tea. But I do enjoy like the Harry Potter esque. Um, there's another series on Netflix that we watched that was similar too that I recommend, but I cannot recall it. I'm boring. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. I mean, you, you. I always get sad when my series reaches the last episode and I have to figure out what to watch next. Yes, I do too. I have I have a couple that I will just. They're like my comfort shows. I'll just rewatch them over and over and over. Okay. I get start to get depressed when I know I'm getting towards the last episode. What are your guys' um, comfort shows or what are you watching now? Um, for me, my comfort shows are Futurama, which is like cartoon style. 
and uh, Dr. Who. I'm a big Whovian. I think you would get along well with my husband. He's into those genres as well. Yeah, I'm much more like you, uh, um, you know, a, more of a fantasy type person in the things that I watch and, and read and, and those kinds of things. And honestly, the selection of stuff that's on for streaming after you watch a lot of the good stuff, there's really not that much to, to watch. So I have rewatched some things a few times just because it's, you know, it is what it is and try to find something. Otherwise, I watch movies that I've probably watched uh, 50 times. I'll sit there and watch it again because I don't care. <laughs> yeah. So what's your favorite movie then, Dr. Starlin? Wow. Favorite movie. That's that's tough. I mean, the favorite one, there's, there's a bunch of them that I, I really, really like. Um, I don't know. I'll have to think for a second. What about you? Do you have a favorite? I'll, I'll think of one. Dr. Zimmer, do you have a favorite? I do, but I'm like totally blanking on the name. Um, <laughs> one. Um, My favorite is Donnie Darko. Hmm. That is an that is an interesting movie. It's been a while since I've seen that one. Yeah. Um, mine is the one with like Hugh Grant and like um, this is this is love or something. But it's been a while since I've even watched that. So I'm <laughs> clearly in COVID. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is COVID and, brain a thing? I think we all have it. Um, I have, I have three and a half year old twins. And so it's like Paw Patrol, um, mm. PJ Masks and um, like Daniel Tiger at my house all the time right now. <laughs> I love, I like uh, like the usual suspects. I like Shawshank Redemption. It seems like every time that comes on, I have to, to watch it. I, uh, uh, I don't know exactly why, but uh, I've seen it a billion times, but I, I still watch it. The Usual good. Suspects is a really good movie. I love that movie. Yeah, that one's kind of off the beaten path a little bit, uh, but uh, but it's it's good. And then probably like lifelong um, sound of music. Like it's like if that movie's <laughs> on, I'll just always watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I watched that with my kids just a few weeks ago, and I had forgotten how long it is. Yeah. And how dark and depressing the second act really is. Yeah. Yeah. But those Von Traps can sing, right? They can. <laughs> well, good. Do you have any, any questions for us or anything that uh, we didn't cover, Dr. Zimmer? Um, no. How, how, tell me about the, the life in your, or the day in your life these this these days i'm curious to see kind of how much covid hijacked everything that you you guys do on a day-to-day -day. yeah i'll let sarah start on that call or text or email or start, start answering them <laughs> so um i work with the icap team and we do infection control support for facilities around the state and um i am not super heavy on our long-term care team but their workload has increased exponentially over the last six weeks. And I feel so bad for everybody. They're just working their little tails off and that long-term care is just not my specialty. Um, you know, I, I have been getting a lot of, a lot of calls regarding uh, respiratory protection. People are starting to want to get all of those steps in place to have that written plan correct. And um, yeah, so I think that our team has gotten really, really crazy. And um, right now for us, it seems like it's job security, <laughs> really. Yeah. Yeah, so um, as everybody probably remembers, so I um, am medical director for employee health here in Nebraska Medicine and also on the ICAP team and Project ECHO team and I don't know, whatever else I do. Um, but uh, yeah, so I usually start getting messages or emails uh, between, it's usually sometime between six and seven in the morning um, is when it starts each day. Some of it's just updates. Uh, some of it is questions, whatever. 
Um, and then you never know when you're going to get a, a call that somebody has symptoms and they can't remember how to get a hold of employee health or where they have to go for testing or uh, what they have to do if they were exposed to, to somebody at their house or maybe at the Garth Brooks concert or something. So you never know what's, uh, what's going to come up uh, during the day. Multiple meetings that are mostly driven by COVID now. I, I'm happy if I have a meeting that isn't COVID. Uh, so uh, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, you feel like that's, uh, if you get to do medicine other than COVID, that it's a, it's a, a, a good day. Um, so, and that usually goes on. It usually starts to quiet down where I don't get any more questions, uh, usually after, after dinner time for the most part. It's not as bad as it was when it started. There were many nights when I was up almost all night answering questions and trying to figure out if people needed to go in isolation or quarantine or or whatever, based on what their symptoms were and, and their exposures were. So that's, that part is much better. But I can tell you, these last three weeks have been significantly more than what we had during the summer. We had a nice little respite and we thought that maybe we were going the right direction until um, Delta and world opening up and nobody wearing masks started. Yeah. Everyone get vaccinated. Yes, please. please. Please get vaccinated. Wear your mask. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Zimmer. It's been a great hour. Thank you for having me. It's great chatting with you guys. Yeah, yeah we're super happy you joined us. It was, it was interesting hearing about your, your interests and where you've been and uh, definitely the oncology ID specialty that I think is uh, certainly a growing Field as we get more meds and uh, are certainly people's lifespans with some of these malignancies are getting longer, the thing that is going to be the common thread between a lot of these patients is going to be infection. Yes, I agree. Job security, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we can figure out how to fix those infections, yeah. though, right? Yeah, I think we have to start taking the um, cue from the oncologist. I think they're getting it right with the immunotherapy. So I think um, cellular therapy might be the next horizon on some of these um, infections, uh, complications too, especially the viruses. I think you need to look into phage therapy. Maybe you should yeah. uh, come up with some of that. That would be fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. That would be yeah. very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, guys. See you later. Yeah. And thank you to our listeners out there for joining us for this hour. Uh, feel free to give us a follow on Twitter at, at Dirty Drinks and leave us a good review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Dirty Drinks. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends if they enjoy Dirty Drinks.